Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening. Well, tonight we have a very special guest. I have admired him for many, many years as a judge in the Orange County Superior Court, and he has recently retired. He has also written several books, and one of them I just finished reading called Wearing the Robe, The Art and Responsibilities of Judging in Today's Court, and that's Judge James P. Gray. Let me tell you a little bit about his background. After receiving his undergraduate degree from UCLA, he then went and got his law degree at USC, and then he went to serve in the Peace Corps in Palmar Norte, which is in Costa Rica. Then from 1972 until 75, Judge Gray was a staff judge advocate and criminal defense attorney for the U.S. Navy JAG Corps at the Naval Air Station in Guam in Lenmore, California. While in that service, he was awarded National Defense Vietnam Service and Combat Action Ribbons. Then Judge Gray was a federal prosecutor with the United States Attorney's Office in Los Angeles, where he eventually headed a unit that prosecuted various frauds against the government. After working in private practice in Newport Beach in civil litigation, then Jim Gray was appointed by Governor Duke Majan to the Santa Ana Municipal Courts, and that was back in 1983. There he was active in trying to combat the major problem of alcohol-related offenses, and he was awarded a commendation from the Orange County Board of Supervisors for these efforts back in 1990. Then he was elevated to the Orange County Superior Court in 1989, where he received awards as Judge of the Year by several different organizations. And then he retired after 25 years on the bench back in January of this year. And now he works as a private judge and mediator for ADR Services in Irvine, California. He's been active in so many advisory boards, I I can't even go through them all. But he was also the founding president of the William P. Gray chapter of the American Inns of Courts and a member of the Board of Counselors of the USC Law School, a member of the Committee on Juvenile Justice for the California Judicial Council, and a founder of Peer Court, which adjudicates real juvenile cases in a number of Orange County high schools, and they use students as jurors. And as I said before, he's also an author of Why Our Our Drug Laws Have Failed and What We Can Do About It, A Judicial Indictment of the War on Drugs. We're going to talk about that. He's been an advocate for legalizing drugs, and, and he has some very good reasons for wanting that to happen. And he also has his new book, Wearing the Robe, The Art and Responsibilities of Judging in Today's Courts, which I just finished. Even if you're not an attorney or a judge, you'd really find this to be fascinating to have that insight into how judges think. And another thing I learned is that he's also the composer of the high school musical Americans All. 
And he also writes a weekly column about issues of our day for the Daily Pilot newspaper. You can learn a lot more about Judge James Gray at www.judgejimgray.com and also at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, where we have his photo and his bio and his website. So thank you so much, Jim, for joining us. Well, Murray, it's nice to be with you. I've been looking forward to it. Go Eaters, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> You have two books that you've written, but we're going to talk about the first one first because I just finished that one uh, just yesterday, and it's called Wearing the Robe, The Art and Responsibilities of Judging in Today's Court. Now, most people don't even know how a judge thinks. They're scared of a judge when they go and appear before a judge, or they have no idea what the judge is thinking, and I thought that was really great because we got into the head of how your honors speak and think. Tell us first, after 25 years on the bench, why did you write this book? Well, Mary, I loved my job. I was blessed to be able to be a trial court judge here in Orange County for 25 years. It allows you to do the right thing under the law, help people, uh, try to resolve disputes uh, voluntarily, or then do your best uh, under the law as, as a, a judge on it. But uh, as time was coming, and I knew I was going to be retiring because I just decided not to run for re-election, my wife actually suggested that I write a book on judging because I'd learned so much. I had so many tips that I wanted to pass along to uh, new judges. Uh, I wish I had read a book like this when I became a judge. And so it's now being used for judicial education. Like you had said, it's also being used by attorneys that maybe like someday to become a judge and other attorneys just to know kind of what a judge is thinking, how you go about uh, planning to, to resolve cases, etc. And then uh, it has a carryover effect, too, kind of like you mentioned, into, into our society for uh, political uh, science classes or just anyone that wants to learn about this all-important third branch of government, which basically people just don't know about. They, they don't know uh, how judges are restrained in their orders. Uh, they, they don't understand that really... You know, the Constitution is not just a piece of paper that is really a, an important document and that uh, we try to uphold it. So it, it really uh, it gives you an opportunity to really be gratified in participating in government, doing the right thing, and uh, meeting a lot of really good people along the way. Jim, I'm going to ask you that it, somehow the sound keeps going loud and, and less loud, loud and dimmer and loud and dimmer. Could you try and keep up the either speaks directly into it the whole time, but try and keep your voice a little louder throughout this because yes. it seems to be going in and out. I can see it on the uh, computer. Do you want me to do that again? Um, you know, should I have him do it? You want to start over? No, I think I can fix that one, but let's do it okay. for the rest of them. Okay. Right. You were just talking about how it might be good for new judges. And actually, that's how I found out about your book, because I read the book review by Andy Guilford, who is a, a recently new judge on the federal bench. So he he absolutely loved it. And I said, well, Andy's great. I'm going to read that book, too. Now, in your book, you, you talk a lot besides just about how the courts are run and, and how to run. For a judge, you talk a lot about your philosophy. Can you give some insight into what it's like to be a judge? Maybe you can talk about what it's like to be a judge on the criminal uh, bench or on the civil bench. Can well, you give judges, us a little bit? Certainly. Judges speak for society. Uh, judge Guilford uh, and the rest of us uh, are able in criminal matters uh, to, to make sure that we uphold people's rights, but we also are actually at the time to hold people accountable for their actions, as I say, with passion as well as compassion. And uh, we speak for society and saying, you know, you did something that, that you should be held accountable for. And it's a, it's a really awful thing to take somebody's liberty away for years on end. Uh, but it's something that has to be done. I don't shrink from it. It should always hurt. But it's just something where we speak for society and say, you know something, you did this. We're going to have to take away your liberty for a while. We're going to take some of your money. We're going to restrain you and put you on parole, probation, etc. So it's really a good system. We have to have prisons in this world. In my opinion, and you get into some of the philosophy, uh, we have too much punitive uh, nature in our society today, where the legislatures seem to feel that uh, everything should be resolved just by greater and greater periods of incarceration. And that really isn't true. Uh, if we could go to something called restorative justice, where in which, yes, you put someone in jail for 
30 or 60 days or, or 90 for a nonviolent offense. But after that, you put them on probation, strictly applied, make them get a job, and then actually take 10 or 15% of their earnings off the top to pay to the victims of their offense. And everyone starts winning. Insurance rates go down. People see that uh, their actions really did cause harm to others, and now they're going to have to pay it off, and that's kind of a pain. And then the victims, of course, receive some money back as well. And the taxpayers don't have to spend so much money keeping people in prison. So these are things that we discuss in the book. I'm proud of them, and uh, I think I've gotten a good response. So, so, so far, we're off to a good start. I know you explained in the book about how what you did with prostitutes, rather than just put them in jail, you had them come back and get a job, and you said that a lot of the times they are prostitutes because they don't have work. And so you would work with them to make sure that they'd come back and tell you how they have looked for a job and... I, that was very successful, wasn't it? Mara, you really did read my book. I That's did. Great. I wouldn't say that I didn't. If I <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm flattered. But, but yes, you know, the biggest antidote to prostitution is full-time employment. Uh, you take people, uh, usually women, but not always, and require them to get a job, and then they can see what their life will be like in the future. Uh, good things happen. And on this report back calendar, I would first, of course, put those people who were coming back and reporting successfully, and then the, the ones just beginning would start to think, gee, that can happen to me too. So that we were able to break that cycle, that, that uh, bond of prostitution, just by honest employment, and I was proud of that. It's just another way that judges really can interfere beneficially uh, or you know, intercede to get the right thing to happen. And I know that- we'll talk about the drug issue soon, and you can do the same thing with uh, alcohol as well as other drugs in exactly the same way. Right. And when you were able to help these people to rehabilitate themselves, then they really appreciated it. And you said, I think you said it was an 80% uh, success rate. Is it something like that? It was in that area, yes. Uh, Of course, you you can only keep statistics for so long. Uh, We were able to get 65% of the alcoholics off alcohol, replacing drinking drivers with sober ones, uh, reinstating a lot of marriages, uh, putting people back to work, etc., same thing with prostitutes, uh, same thing with, with other drug abusers. So, so, yes, a judge, that ogre in a black robe, if you require accountability and you don't make false threats, but you just don't overdo the punitive nature, uh, good things will start to happen for everyone. Well, in talking about that, that must have been very enjoyable. What are some of the other aspects of being a judge that was really enjoyable? Probably... Uh, other than getting a letter, for example, from a woman saying, Dear Judge Gray, I was going to divorce my husband. He'd get drunk. He'd beat me up. He'd beat up our children. I couldn't do it anymore. But now that he's on your program, he's off alcohol, and you've given me my husband back. He's the man that I married. I mean, how many letters like that do you need before you realize that you're on the right track? But after that, probably the biggest source of gratification, Mari, is to be able to help people voluntarily resolve their disputes. Uh, you get into settlement conferences, you have no enforcement authority other than ordering the people to be there, and then you work out a resolution, sometimes being creative, uh, trying to put the train back on the track, uh, particularly with families or business partners, or if it doesn't work, then to try to dust them off, head them in the right direction, put these problems aside, and let them go on with their lives. So that really is a gratifying thing. You mentioned that now I'm in private judging, which I am. Uh, so I can continue to do that. I have one of those uh, later on today. So uh, it's just it's a real source of gratification to help people resolve their problems. Exactly. Now, there's the downside as well and drawbacks. What are some of the most critical concerns or drawbacks about being a judge? I know you have that in your book as well. Well, there are some. Uh, you're living in a fishbowl, uh, <laughs> and, and it's just it's in work as well as off work. Uh, you have to be careful of your comments have to be careful of your humor. Uh, even un- unguarded comments uh, can be taken and blown out of proportion because we are held to a higher standard. Uh, to be honest with you, even when I go out and do public speaking, which I do a fair amount of, uh, just using a few words, uh, even damn or hell, not that the people are shocked about it, but they're just disappointed, and you can tell that, that they expect better from us. So it, it's a little hard to live within that, but uh, uh, that's a, a minor problem. Uh, finances, that of you and your spouse, have to be disclosed. 
okay, that's kind of a nuisance. I'm a libertarian. I don't think it's any of their business normally. But And I this show is that. called Privacy Piracy, so we agree. <laughs> yeah, well, indeed. Uh, you know, I, I am a libertarian. Uh, we, we really are giving away our civil liberties so much, uh, and the intrusion of government is continuing, and it disturbs me greatly, uh, easily. The uh, best document of the Enlightenment or the best, best document ever written by the hand of mankind, in my opinion, is the U.S. Constitution and our civil liberties that go with it in the Bill of Rights. And over the course of time, we have given in a lot of our civil liberties to the extent that I think our founding fathers would be most upset with us if they were here today and talking to us. Absolutely. And, and we talk about that every week, believe me, because that is a, big, a very big concern of ours on this show as well. Well, you should be, because uh, in my first book uh, on uh, the, judge, the, the drug issue, uh, where the... Uh, uh, issue of why our drug laws have failed, I have a chapter outlining how we have given away our civil liberties because of drug courses, courts uh, cases from the U.S. Supreme Court. If I were to retitle that, I would say, uh, where's Paul Revere? Why is no one spreading the alarm? Because once you lose your civil liberties, you almost never get them back. And well, that's the name of your next book, right? <laughs> oh, me. <laughs> <laughs> now now you, you've got to do it. You've got to do it. You said it, you got to do it. But you're right. One of the drawbacks about, you know, this appearance of impropriety, even if there is no impropriety, that you've got to maintain that appearance of ethics no matter what. And you have to be ethical, but any appearance of impropriety is going to be very difficult for any judge. And And that's true, but it's something that we welcome, actually. The higher you are in a position in our country, the higher the degree of accountability you should have. Right. Uh, an attorney appearing in my court is held to a higher standard than uh, than a citizen. Uh, right. Certainly a uh, law enforcement officer is held to a higher standard, and the highest of those, of course, should be the judge. And, and that's logical, appropriate, and we welcome it. Now, Judge Gray, did you ever worry about your safety? You know, we've heard about horrible things happening to judges who have ruled against uh, defendants or against even in civil cases and divorce cases. Have you ever been worried about your safety um, being on the bench? I'm not particularly oriented in that direction as far as security is concerned, but uh, you certainly can look with deep concern when uh, there was a judge oh, about five years ago that was literally uh, shot and killed in his own courtroom. Uh, those things are increasing. Uh, the threats to judges are increasing. Uh, the security, of course, is, is continuing. Uh, but when it comes down to it, even even speaking out against our nation's drug policy, I mean, who are the people that stand the most to lose? And that is obviously the big-time drug dealers. Right. And, uh, they would, if they're irrational, would go after the sounding board, the messenger. So that, that element is there. Uh, on the other hand, the, the contribution that we can make to our wonderful country by changing away from this failed policy, which is the biggest failed policy since slavery uh, overwhelms and uh, certainly reduces the, uh, the concern about the threats. You know, getting back to when you were talking about the Constitution and, and how really wonderful it was, I loved in the beginning of your book you gave a condensed history lesson of how our judicial se- uh, system came into being. Uh, can you give a little taste of that for my audience? We have a lot of students here listening at the University of California, and we have business people driving by. Amari, it's, it is inspiring. Uh, the founding fathers somehow uh, were all placed together. They were you know, people in agriculture. Yes, they were aristocracy and elitists and landowners, but how did they ever get into the position of being familiar with uh, the Roman uh, development of law? Uh, the Greek development of law. Certainly, of course, the British, and we brought over the British tradition in our common law, but what they put together was miraculous. Uh, And so we traced that back. It was really a fun excursion to go back through the course of time. You get into Hammurabi, and you get into uh, uh, ancient Greece and Rome, Rome particularly, that we uh, borrowed a lot of doctrines from. And it's evolving still. In fact, as you noticed in that chapter, uh, it's continuing to evolve. Where Now we're talking about important issues like access to justice, so that everybody in our society, regardless of whether they speak English or Vietnamese or Spanish or whatever, uh, man or woman or young or old or any powerless or or, uh, uh, powerful, all have that access to justice, not only receive justice, 
but understand that they are receiving justice. So we talk about justice is actually a process. It's a two-step thing. Number one, of course, we need to get the right result under the law. But the second is people need to understand that that judge has listened, has considered, uh, is applying the law fairly, and explains his reasons. And then, of course, people will be willing to accept defeat as long as they think that they had a fair shake. So it's, it's really inspiring to go back and look through that history. And it was inspiring, to be honest with you, to be able to write about it. And I was inspired, too. When you're talking about access to justice, this is kind of an interesting thing for both of us because I, I've been an ADR specialist. You know, I've been mediating for 24 years, and you've been doing settlements for many, many, many years, and now you're a private judge and a mediator. So those are wonderful, and I, I support that because it gives disputants the opportunity to resolve the issues in a private and confidential manner. But at the same time, there is a concern about access to judges for those people who can't afford to have private judging through the various other types of private judging. And we don't have enough money and resources for a lot of community mediation anymore. So what are some of the concerns about private judging as opposed to is there opportunity or is there a real concern about how that is affecting our state and federal courts? Yes. I am deeply concerned, like you are, Mari, about the possibility of only having justice for the wealthy. And basically, private mediation is not cheap. Uh, and it is available for people you know, like Michael Jackson who want to resolve their issues uh, quietly and the rest. Uh, and, and as a libertarian or as a judge, uh, I'm embarrassed that, in fact, this whole cottage industry of private judging has come up because I think that the court system should be able to resolve all of these matters. Uh, but life happens, and it is here and it's here to stay. But we, having said that, uh, we do furnish attorneys for all criminal defendants who can't afford it now. And that's gone, gone on uh, really for about 50 years, and hooray for that. Uh, we do have small claims court cases, which people should be aware of, that in California, if you or I have in a dispute uh, of $7,500 or less, uh, we are not allowed to have an attorney. You simply file a complaint, it's served, you bring people in, they, they're reduced uh, evidentiary issues so that you can actually bring in written comments from somebody that can't be there, and you just kind of have a town hall meeting where what did you think happened here, Charlie? What did you think happened there, Mary? and the judge makes a decision. Uh, it's a really healthy thing, as long as, of course, the judge listens. They feel that the judge is, is considerate and is uh, weighing this issue and then explains it. So these are all really, really positive developments. Uh, you get into other positive developments, and Orange County leads the nation and the world in some of these. So we have a judge, my colleague, Judge Wendy Lindley, who has now things like homeless courts, uh, community courts, we're at the lowest level of our society, where people are homeless, mentally disturbed. And they're actually getting attention. They're getting a staff to address their problems. The jail is doing awful things for these mentally fragile people. But now with Judge Lindley and these programs, where they're actually getting them jobs, they're getting them help, and it's costing the taxpayer ever so much less money in doing it. So these are also evolutions that people should hear about. Uh, and people in our area, you want to read my column you've mentioned, it's on the Daily Pilot uh, every Sunday, where we talk about homeless courts, and we talk about uh, soon actually transcendental meditation that's working really quite well for students in numbers of schools. These are positive developments, not necessarily expensive, that are happening now in our county, and, uh, and I'm proud of it. Uh, and uh, Dean Chemerinsky at UCI uh, Law School is interested in dispute resolution. He's putting in a phenomenal law school here. We have every right to be proud of that, hold our heads up high. So good things are happening, too. Exactly. Yeah, we had Dean Chemerinsky on our show recently as well. So um, the other thing that people that we should tell the Orange County community about is that we do have a, an alternative dispute resolution panel at the Orange County Superior Court where mediators such as you and I will offer our services as a reduced fee as well to, to help people to 
uh, resolve their disputes, if possible, outside the court. I think the, the concern that sometimes people have with regard to alternative dispute resolution is that when you have a case that is very important, we also need to set precedent. And what do you think about that? Can you help my audience understand the importance of setting precedent? Well, of course. Uh, if you go into any law office, uh, decreasingly, but because uh, it's on it's on the internet now, but you'll see these law books. And if we have a case that is of any interest at all for the future, it will be written up, and then that's what attorneys do. They have a particular dispute now, and they try to get guidance from other similar disputes in the in the past, and they read about the resolution, uh, the explanation as to why, what the law is, and see if the law is the same or has been changed. Uh, it's impossible for anyone in the legislature to write a law that will cover everything that's going to happen in the future, or really almost anything. So we need, it's a living thing, and uh, that's why attorneys are, are so important in our world. Most cases, of course, don't even get filed because a lot of attorneys will resolve it even without bringing it to court. A lot of them that do get filed with court, uh, I think 95% are resolved without trial. Uh, because we have good people in our profession to work and to try to apply the law fairly and to get a reasonable result for their client. You know, you also talked in your book about the importance of having a judge be an attorney first. And you, you talked a little bit that are in some states, and I, I don't know if it's in our state too, I don't think you said in our state, but in, um, in some states you don't have to be an attorney to be a judge what are some of the drawbacks of having a judge who's not an attorney, who doesn't look at precedent? We, we have to have actions based upon law. In fact, we say that. It's one of our battle cries for our society, that we are a government of laws, not of men. Because there are some people, and, and we go through this in judicial voir dire, where we're trying to figure out to get people on the jury uh, to make sure that they will follow the law. For example... Uh, if you're not going to have someone who is trained in the law and they're the judge, it may be that they just decide, well, you know, uh, this man was, was uh, he just hit his wife around a little bit because she was mouthing off. Now, you know, uh, she didn't hit her, didn't hit him, her too hard, uh, she didn't hurt her too badly, uh, and you can't just have women mouthing off to their husbands. Uh, it ain't right. Well, you know, the law says otherwise, and even if that happens to be your view as a juror or a judge, you shouldn't be sitting in judgment on that case. So if you don't have that legal training to put your biases aside, and that's kind of an extreme one, uh, or slavery, uh, or, or you know any of these other things, uh, it's really important because uh, people are relying that, in fact, the law will be applied as well as humanly possible and consistently, even if you don't agree with it. And as a judge, I have enforced numbers of laws that I have not agreed with. I don't have to do it quietly. But I, I took an oath to carry out and underscore and protect the Constitution of our federal government as well as state and the laws of the state of California. And if I don't follow those, I should resign. Exactly. We're speaking right now with Judge James P. Gray, who retired from the Orange County Superior Court in January of 2009. And now he sits as a private judge and mediator right here in Orange County. He is also the author of a couple books. One is called Why Our Drug Laws Have Failed and What We Can Do About It, A Judicial Indictment of the War on Drugs. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. And we've also just been talking about his new book called Wearing the Robe, The Art and Responsibilities of Judging in Today's Courts. So let's kind of switch gears now and talk about this issue of why our drug laws have failed. You have a long history in the criminal justice system. So uh, what progress have you seen in the war on drugs? Uh, not much, to be honest with you, Mari. Uh, we are in much worse shape today than we were five years ago with regard to the entire issue of drug use and abuse and all the crime and misery that goes with it. Uh, at least, though, people are discussing the issue more. Uh, at least they're starting to understand that just because we discuss this critically important issue does not at all mean that we support drug abuse. Uh, in fact, just because we might realize we have options doesn't mean that we support drug abuse, or even if we were to adopt some of those options. Because we have lost more of our civil liberties because of the war on drugs than anything in the history of our country, uh, we are 
putting our children in harm's way uh, as a result of drug prohibition. Notice I say drug prohibition because we repealed alcohol prohibition. Uh, fortunately, we came to our senses. Now, of course, we have drug prohibition with all of the same Al Capone problems that we had before. So these are just things that we just have to allow ourselves to discuss. And when it comes down to it, we're facing two substantial problems in our world today. One is drug problems, and nothing I say is meant to minimize those because they can be severe. That certainly includes alcohol. But the second problem is even worse, and that's drug money problems. And the drug money problems are far worse because they are endangering our children, uh, putting our children in harm's way. Of course, uh, the drug cartels in Mexico are bringing their violence into our country. We're corrupting our officials and our children and others uh, with regard to drug money. It goes on and on and on. And it's not just drug money. It's killing. It's murder. Well, the murder is not caused by drugs. The murder is caused by drug money. Right. We don't right. have people shooting each other because uh, Coors Beer has a distribution problem with Budweiser. They bring those problems to me. But since we have illegal activity, they can't come to court. So then, of course, they have their thugs beat up the other people's thugs, and they shoot it out or whatever. And, of course, there's a lot of violence for innocent civilians as well. And it's only going to get worse until we take away that money. Jim, you talk about uh, the fact that our present policy actually is putting our, our kids in harm's way. Yes. W- what do you mean by that? People realize that what we're doing isn't working, but they will continue with this failed program of drug prohibition, so-called, uh, in order to protect our children to keep these sometimes dangerous addicting drugs away from our kids. But as I've said in a moment ago, we're putting our children in harm's way for two really important reasons. Number one is it's easier for our young people to get al- to get marijuana or any other illicit drug if they want to, that's the key, and it is a six-pack of beer. Why? Because the illegal drugs are controlled by illegal drug dealers and they don't ask for ID. So talk to your high school kids, talk to your junior college, anyone under 21, and they'll give you the truth, which is, if you ask them, it's easier for them to get marijuana because the marijuana finds them. Nobody is offering a free sample of Jim Beam bourbon on a high school campus today. Why? Well, obviously, they'll get into huge trouble, and they know it, and they just don't do it. You don't have kids selling Budweiser beer to each other there or anywhere else, but you do have free samples of marijuana, methamphetamines, or other drugs offered in high school campuses all the time because of the money. So that's the first problem. The second problem is similar, but an adult, can buy all kinds of risk-taking from a 15-year-old kid or on the way up for $50 in cash, as we all know. As a result, a lot of adults control as many teenagers as they want because of that chump change. So once you recruit children to an adult's drug distribution network, and they use them for gophers or for couriers or lookouts or whatever, once their reliability is established, the adults always trust the kids go out and sell small amounts of drugs in the communities. Why? Well, that's easy. The kid makes more money, the adult makes more money. So, Mari, ask yourself this question. If you have a 15-, 16-year-old selling drugs in their communities, who are they going to sell to? People like you and me? Of course not. They're going to sell to their 14-, 15-, 16-year-old peers, thus recruiting more children to a lifestyle of drug usage and drug selling, and it's all caused by our program of drug prohibition. I've seen this in juvenile court time and time again. It is not a pretty sight. We must repeal drug prohibition in order to save our children. And and you talk about the, you've seen this in juvenile court. What about our prisons? How are they affected? Well, of course, the United States of America leads the world in the incarceration of our people. We have something in the order of 2.3 million people right this minute behind bars in our country. Uh, It is something like 15 times the number per capita as they have in Japan. Uh, It is something like three times the number of people by volume in the European Union, and they have twice the population in the European Union that we do. So here, I assure you, we're number one does not make me proud. Uh, It doesn't work. It's enormously expensive, both, of course, financially for the taxpayers, as well as humanly, and frequently, of course, when you take the parents and put them in prison, the children are now brought into the welfare system, or the remaining parents and children are put on the welfare system. So, you know, we just are not doing it right, and we 
couldn't do it worse if we tried, to be honest with you. And what about the difference between a drug user and a drug seller? Is that Do you di- differentiate at all? Well, of course. Uh, and I believe in prisons and anybody that's going to make money uh, by selling this, this misery uh, deserves to go to prison, although I would much prefer to set up a, a system that didn't so strongly encourage it. But if you take it below that, we have lots and lots of drug-addicted people today. And what do they do to support their habits? Well, a lot of burglaries, prostitutions, of course, but invariably they will also get larger amounts of their drugs, and then they will sell drugs to you, your neighbors, your children, in order to support their habits. So when you talk to the police, they'll say, oh, well, we don't put people in prison for using marijuana. And that's generally true, although not quite. But we put in the sellers. Well, most of those people are low levels selling the drugs in order to support their habits. These people have filled our prisons today. Very, very expensive pastime for the, for the taxpayer, by the way. Uh, you know, it, it costs something in the order of $400 million now to build a prison and about $100 million every year just to staff it. So the state of California, you may not be aware, but in, throughout our entire history, by the year 1984, had built 13 state prisons. Mm. Today we have 33. So you can tell the enormous, the explosion of prison population. They're all overcrowded. We're not in any shape of, of turning any of these people away. Many, many of those are there for nonviolent drug offenses. And then when they're in there for nonviolent uh, drug offenses, they, court, they seem to collaborate or become friendly with people who are in there for other types of crimes. Hey, hey, How does that affect lot, them? They have a lot of time on their hands, and Don't they learn they? to do it better. They, they meet connections. Uh, they learn how to do it better when they get out. Uh, you know, And it's hopeless because we've now rendered them automatically uh, ineligible for jobs because they're a convicted felon, so they're basically unemployable. Uh, even if they want to get away from drugs and that, that lifestyle, we basically we can't because... Uh, They just don't have that chance. Uh, There is, however, in Donovan State Prison, which is in northern San Diego County, a really effective but small drug treatment program in this men's prison. Uh, And these men, of course, have access to drugs. We can't keep drugs out of prison. But uh, they get some anger management. They get some job training. They get some discussions of medical issues, making choices, etc. And, all importantly, they have an aftercare support group so once they're released on parole, they have kind of like AA meetings, but they have a support group. Their recidivism rate is only 18%. The recidivism rate for those that do have the same problems, they were in prison probably for violence and for drug usage, uh, the recidivism of those people that did not go through this system is 80%. So come on, let's, let's at least give these people some assistance in helping them stay away from recidivism. Drug treatment really does work. And, you know, you're so right when you talk about the fact that they can't get a job. And we've talked on this show how everybody and their brother right now is doing background checks. And these background checks will bring up things even longer than it should. And it never goes away. You know, if you've had something in your past, you really don't have the opportunity in our society anymore to to start over without anybody knowing your past. It just follows you everywhere. So if we're going to be putting people in prison for drug use or for maybe just selling a small amount of marijuana, we're ruining their entire lives. I have told people that, first of all, I've never used any form of illicit substance. Uh, You could legalize cocaine give it away on every street corner and bless it by every religious leader in town, and I'm still not going to jam cocaine up my nose. And you're not either. Uh, many of our listeners aren't either, and if they would, they're probably using it already. But I, so it's not simply something that I want to do. Having said that, the worst, most dangerous thing about marijuana is jail. Uh, the remedy is far, far worse than any supposed disease. And that's virtually true with regard to these other drugs as well. What you want to do is to understand, I have never in my life, nor have you, nor has anyone else listening here, ever heard anyone say that being a heroin addict is a good thing. I mean, we all know that that's just going in the wrong direction, not something we want to do. But if you are addicted to heroin, let's have a system that brings you closer to medical professionals that can help you instead of rendering you an automatic criminal and pushing you farther away. So the answer is, in the criminal justice system, and 
here you're listening to a veteran trial judge of 25 years' experience say this. Hold people accountable for their actions, not what they put into their bodies. Now, again, as a libertarian, I say that I think the government has as much right to control what I put into my body as it does what I put into my mind. I mean, really, it's none of their business as an adult. And I, can, I or you tonight can go home and drink 10 martinis uh, as long as we don't drive a car or beat up our spouse. It's not a violation of law, nor should it be. Certainly not a smart thing to do. And the same would be true with regard to any of these other drugs. But uh, if you think of it further, it makes a sense much sense to me to put this gifted actor Robert Downey Jr. in jail for his cocaine problem or heroin, and he certainly seems to have one, as it would have Betty Ford in jail for her alcohol problem. I mean, that's a medical issue. Let them deal with it that way. But, Mari, if you or I or Betty Ford or Robert Downey Jr. drive a motor vehicle while impaired by any of these drugs, that's different. That's a crime as well as it should be. Why? Because now, by their actions, they're putting our safety at risk. So let's change our approach to hold people accountable for their bodies, to, excuse me, for their actions, not what they put into their bodies. So, Jim, what, what, do you, what is your proposal? Where should we start? Well, we should start by addressing marijuana. In fact, right this minute in the state of California, there is an assembly bill, Assembly Bill 390, that's being carried by an assemblyman from San Francisco named Tom Amiano that would treat marijuana like alcohol. You know, I don't really know what would happen with regard to treating heroin or cocaine like alcohol, which I actually favor, but let's just start with marijuana and find out and see. We couldn't do it worse than we tried, by the way, so let's try something different. What would happen? Let's just go through this for a minute. What would happen if we in the state of California were to treat marijuana like alcohol? Five things would occur plus one more. The first five would be all demonstrably beneficial. The sixth we'll talk about. The first thing that happens is that we as taxpayers would literally save a billion dollars of our taxpayer money that now we are spending in a futile effort to eradicate marijuana as well as prosecute and incarcerate nonviolent marijuana users. And you can tell how successful we are in its eradication because today marijuana is the number one cash crop in the state of California. And number two is grapes, by the way. <laughs> number two. Not avocados, huh? <laughs> <laughs> no, not yet. Uh, but if you drive along Highway 5 or you go into to, uh, Napa Valley or anywhere else and you see these miles and miles of vineyards, understand marijuana is a bigger cash crop even than those grapes. Wow. Number two is we could generate revenue of $1.3 billion a year to be gained by taxing this silly stuff. Now, when I was at the press conference for AB 390, which I request your listeners to support, I request them to contact anyone they can vote for in Sacramento requesting that those folks support Assembly Bill 390 to treat marijuana like alcohol. But when I was at the press conference, a lady named Betty Yee was there also, Y-E-E, and she is now the chair of the State Board of Equalization for our state. And she was supporting the measure as well, and that was her number that her agency came up with, $1.3 billion a year. So now we have a shift of our budget deficit in the state of California by $2.3 billion every year. You'd think somebody would notice. And, and boy, do we need the money right now. Oh, my goodness, yes. <laughs> you know, I, I think we all agree with that. The right. third thing that would happen, though, will trump the first two, and we've talked about it a little bit already. We would make marijuana less available for our children than it is today. Why? Well, we've discussed that once again. If you prohibit a substance, you give up all of your ability to regulate it, control it, have, have uh, advertising issues, have uh, uh, years, you know, the age restrictions, etc. So we'd make it less available for kids than it is now. The fourth thing that would happen is the entire medical marijuana dispute would go away. Hooray for that, because medical marijuana is a viable medicine. Numbers and numbers of medical doctors as well as patients say so. That dispute would simply evaporate. And the fifth is probably as big as the first four, and that is we would re-legitimize the hemp industry uh, in our state. And hemp goes back thousands of years, by the way, Mari. The, in ancient Greek, the word for cannabis and canvas were the same word. Uh, it has numbers and numbers of positive usages to the degree that you or I can today go to Trader Joe's and buy some hemp seed granola, which is really rather nutritious. Uh, in fact, I'm even told, although I don't know this, that the uh, diesel engine originally was designed to run on fuel from hemp. Uh, we could revitalize the entire northwest of the United States in the 
timber industry or the paper pulp industry because you can get four times the amount of paper pulp from an acre of hemp as you can an acre of trees. It takes one season to grow the trees, excuse me, one season to grow the hemp and 20 years to grow the trees. So these are all things that would be positive. What's that sixth thing? Well, I'm convinced that if you were to make marijuana no longer illegal, reduce the cost by half, which you have to do to run the illegal dealers out of business, you would have adults increase their marijuana usage. For how long? I don't know, six months, maybe 12, maybe even 18. But then I'm sure that we would start to experience the same phenomenon that's been going on in Holland now for about 20 years. Because in Holland, where they have a program of decriminalization, where it's still illegal to buy, use, or possess marijuana, but the police are instructed in writing, as long as you stay within very well-known general guidelines, to leave you alone. What, hmm. what does that mean? Anybody 16 years of age or older can go to a coffee shop in Holland and get coffee and tea and sandwiches and also marijuana and hashish. Okay, that's the, that's the program. The Minister of Health of Holland had a press conference, and I cite it in my book, uh, Why Our Drug Laws Have Failed, and he said, we only have half the marijuana consumption in our country per capita as you do in the United States, listen to him, both for adults and for teenagers. Now, again, half the marijuana consumption, both for adults and for teenagers per capita in their country as ours. Then he went on to explain why. He said, we have succeeded in making pot boring. Now, there's a real message there because we glamorize it here. We have a profit motive to get people to use it, uh, and we glamorize it by being illegal. They make it boring. So I'm convinced that if we were to pass AB 390, which, again, I request uh, support for, treat marijuana like alcohol, that, uh, yes, we'd have an increase in usage of marijuana by adults, but after a while it would pretty much recede uh, to back to where it is now or maybe even below. What's not to like? And, and what is what about the, the uh, old adage that start with marijuana and it leads to cocaine and sure. all the other? What do you say to that? Sure. It's, it's basically the stepping stone theory, yes. and it's been exploded by pretty much every study that's addressed it. Uh, and the answer is that 80% of all people in our country that use marijuana use nothing more than marijuana. They stop there. So the ones that, that go on, yes, they use methamphetamines, cocaine, or whatever. Yes, I acknowledge they very likely use marijuana along the way. But before they used that, they used tobacco. Before they used tobacco, they used alcohol. You can really trace it back to mother's milk if you want to. But it just it, it, is, it simply does not hold out. Most people use marijuana. That's where they end up, uh, and there's no no proclivity whatsoever just because you use marijuana uh, to continue on with that other usage of drugs. We're speaking tonight with Judge James P. Gray, who has recently retired from the Orange County Superior Court, but he is serving as a private judge and mediator here in Orange County, and he's the author of two wonderful books, the first one that we're talking about right now, why Our Drug Laws Have Failed and What We Can Do About It, A Judicial Indictment of the War on Drugs. And we also talked this evening about his newest book, Wearing the Robe, The Art and Responsibilities of Judging in Today's Courts. Judge Gray, what about methamphetamine? You know, as, as one who deals quite a bit with victims of identity theft, methamphetamine and identity theft go together like a horse and carriage. People are up all night. They need the money. They go and they pull uh, mailboxes off the street, open this stuff, make up their own checks. They're just up all night thinking of ways that they can use your identity and my identity. And this obviously is the fastest growing crime in our country. What about methamphetamine? Where do you go with that with legalization? Certainly. Mary, hands down, the methamphetamine scares me more than any other of these drugs. Uh, They're a serious, serious problem. Uh, the difficulty is that, you know, and again, I'm not glamorizing their usage, uh, but we, if you're using methamphetamines today, again, you're an automatic criminal. You can't really go to seek medical assistance for fear of criminal penalty. And also, by the way, you really don't know what you're putting into your body. Uh, this methamphetamine that's out there, a lot of it is processed by the Hells Angels or other juvenile, juvenile gangs, etc. And if they just cook it a little too long or they don't end up getting enough of such and such ingredients so they throw in some other stuff, really, really can do serious damage to you. 
Or you could start a fire in your house. You know, recently, wasn't there something in the news about a woman who started a fire in her house and it killed her baby? Oh, yeah, the the vapors, the fumes are deathly, uh, and they're explosive. I mean, it's just a dangerous thing. Those are all methamphetamine money problems. Uh, So I don't want people to take methamphetamines. If it came down to it, I'd rather they take the more natural substance and take cocaine if those are my only choices. Because the synthetic drugs, if anything, are worse than these. But again, we just exacerbate these real serious problems of methamphetamine by methamphetamine prohibition. So again, I would start with marijuana, and let's all see what happens there. And then maybe we would expand that to heroin and and, uh, cocaine, probably at least at the beginning under the control of a medical doctor, uh, where, of course, medical doctors can prescribe methamphetamines today. They just call them different things because they're pharmaceutical products. But we need to bring the medical community closer to these people that have drug problems and once again hold people accountable for their actions, understanding, just like with alcohol, that if you're a problem user, if you're involved with identity theft or stealing from the mails or any of these things, those actions will bring you into my courtroom. And if you happen to have a methamphetamine problem, then I can coerce you into treatment uh, just as just like I do with alcohol or anything else. So you don't need the drugs to be illegal in order to hold the problem users that are causing violence to us all or crime to us all accountable for their actions. Right. And we're seeing that, you know, for the methamphetamine users, we're seeing not only young people, we're seeing, you know, young mothers who are on this. It's brutal. It it is brutal. And they're finding that that, that's their way of of dealing with issues of divorce and and single parenthood. I mean, I've I've spoken with some and interviewed them even on my show. Why did they become methamphetamine users? It's uh, it's it is terrible. Well, but what we want to do is to bring these out from under the the rug. Uh, We want to give our children honest education. We have been lying to our children a lot, particularly with regard to marijuana, so then they stop believing us when we tell them the truth with regard to things like methamphetamines. So I would take people to clinics where these drug abusers are and let the drug abusers talk to them and tell them the truth. Nobody is going to say, oh, follow my lead, you know, using this heroin was really a great idea. Our kids are going to see that that's just the wrong direction to go in, whether it's legal or not. These drugs will cause harm to your body. Your body will not forget, and your body will hold you accountable. I mean, ask Janis Joplin or you know, River Phoenix or any of these other people. I mean, they're just not a healthy thing to do. But if we stop glamorizing it and bring in honest education and, uh, and treatment, we'd be miles ahead of where we are today. Jim, you know, when you talk about stop glamorizing it, and and I understand what you mean by making it, you know, because it's taboo and it's just like the Prohibition era, but look at how we glamorize alcohol. Look at any football game, right? And look at the commercials. We we glamorize alcohol. That's right. So, So what about, I mean, won't there still be a glamorization? When I'm king of California, and I think King James has kind of a ring to it and even a precedent, but so far the movement hasn't caught on. But uh, I would have government package stores for uh, things like heroin, cocaine, and marijuana, where if an adult really wanted to get the stuff, and it's fully available anyway, uh, they can not be, uh, not be a violation of law. But it has to be owned by the government. And here, again, it's difficult for a libertarian to talk about this. I was going to say. This that's, is... <laughs> that's right. But the trade-off is if it were owned by Philip Morris or Squibb or Upjohn Pharmaceuticals or whatever, they would have a constitutional First Amendment right to advertise it. And I do not want that to happen. And the only way you can keep it from being advertised on the radio or at the, the all games or wherever is to have the government control it. And then you can have it raised processed by, you know, some low-bid contract through a pharmaceutical company or a tobacco company. Uh, You could actually have, by low-bid contract, someone staff the the government package store. Uh, I was just in Georgia a couple of weeks ago, and that's the way they sell alcohol. They have separate public uh, government package stores, not at your local pharmacy, not at your local grocery store, so they separate it, which makes it less glamorous. Uh, So that's what I would do. Cannot, cannot, please have any advertising over this over the air. Like, oh, you know, I I'm going to go buy Gray's Kick cocaine. Uh, I heard it advertised recently. That's a good brand. You can get six for the price of five. 
no right. age restriction. I mean, that's silly. It would, by the way, Mari, still be better than what we're doing today, but there are many, many better ways of doing it, and that is to deglamorize it. Uh, if people want to know, want to get it, they'll know by word of mouth where to go, but we don't want to glamorize it any more than necessary. Right. What about your thoughts about who is really in charge federally of these drugs? You know, right now it's the DEA, right? The director of the DEA. Would it be more appropriate to be with the Surgeon General? Well, yes, indeed. Uh, with regard to the critical issue, in the 1970s, uh, Richard Nixon's administration caused the passage of the uh, federal narcotics laws, making different drugs on different schedules. So Schedule One is a drug that has no medicinal properties whatsoever and a high likelihood for abuse. Uh, what is that? Actually, it's marijuana, heroin, and PCP. Well, uh, I agree with heroin and PCP, but certainly not with regard to marijuana. What you should do instead is to transfer, redelegate the ability to decide which drug is on which schedule. It's now been delegated to the head of the DEA, who's a police officer. Redelegate it back to the Surgeon General. That is a medical decision that should be made by medical professionals, not by a police officer. And in fact, as I tell the medical community, uh, the police are usurping your, your ability to practice medicine. They are practicing medicine without a license. That is something that the president should do immediately. And I don't think there'd really be any, anybody uh, con countering you know, the whole idea. That obviously is a medical decision. Let a medical doctor make it. That makes sense. You were talking before about Switzerland and some of the things that they've done. Um, what about Portugal? I've, I've heard that Portugal has basically legalized all drugs. Is, is that true? And, and how is that working? Yes, it is true uh, that Portugal does no longer has prison jail connected with the use of any drugs. Uh, they fully legalized them in that way beginning in the year 2001. Uh, they had a study by the Cato Institute that's just been released actually within the, the last three or four weeks uh, that gives the results, and the results are extremely beneficial. Uh, I'm surprised that more publicity has not been given about that. Of course, it's terribly against our present policy in the United States, so they, they have that chilling effect there. But they basically treat it as a citation so that if you or I or anyone else is using any of these drugs, if we are problem users, uh, we are, in effect, coerced into treatment uh, and fined a little bit, but there's no jail connected to it, and it's really deglamorized the whole situation. Drug use is going down. Uh, the crimes are going down. The medical issues are being addressed. It's really very successful. And, and that makes sense for us to look at something that is successful and, and use it as an example for our own cha you know, changes, because when we think about Mexico and the cartels, and here we are in California, people are afraid to even drive across the border now Absolutely. because of what's going on, and the drug cartels are really causing all of this problem, the kidnappings and the killings, and, and it, it is all related to the drug issue, right? Well, it is indeed, Mari. In fact, put it this way. In any program that you could or I could institute, there are always some winners and some losers, right? Some people come out ahead, some people come out behind, and that's true with regard to transportation or education or health care. It's certainly true with regard to the whole issue of drug policy. Well, who is winning today with regard to this? And I have six groups that are coming out ahead. Let's see if you and our listeners agree. The first is, obviously, the big-time drug dealers. You know, they're making hundreds of millions, billions of dollars a year, tax-free, no one in law enforcement tells you with a straight face that we seize more than 10% of the illegal drugs in our society. The more candid ones will tell you that it's only about 5%. So any seizure of a ton of cocaine, for example, and you just can't fathom how much a ton is, is not a victory. You know, even you have these photo ops, but for every ton that we seize, we easily fail to seize another 10 to 15 tons. So you're beginning to see the problem. The number two group of people that are winning are the juvenile gangs, the ones almost every juvenile gang is using drugs as a source of revenue. Third group is the law enforcement, the people who are in government receiving huge tax money in order to fight against the first two groups. Now, by the way, I'm not pointing the finger at law enforcement as far as being failure. Right, they don't cause the problem. They do not. In fact, they're doing a great job. They're getting more seizures. They're higher place people are, are being prosecuted, longer prison sentences. 
blaming law enforcement is kind of like blaming Elliot Ness for the failure of alcohol prohibition. Right. And, and Judge Gray, we, we are just about out of time here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So uh, what I want to do is send everybody to your website so they can learn more and they can also learn more about AB 390. Can you just give your website and we got to go? Yes, and thank you. It's www.judgejimgray.com. Judge Jim Gray is G-R-A-Y, like the color of my hair. And there's a lot of information there. Uh, We just need to legitimize the discussion. To be frank with you, we couldn't do it worse if we tried. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And we will have you back again and see what happens about what's going on in the legislature and what's going on with drug use. Thank you so much. Look forward to it. Okay. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. Please visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. There you can see our upcoming guests. You can download podcasts. You can listen to archived interviews. And you can write us emails about what you want to know about for privacy in the information age. Thank you and good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.